You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Do you know what happened on December 22nd in 1938? I do not. I know, but it smells fishy, Evan. Yeah, very good, Jay. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, Coelacanth. Have you ever heard of Coelacanth? That's a good album by George Robb. Living Fossil. Right, that's right. Well, this, yeah. this was the date in history that it was discovered by a museum curator in South Africa. And she spotted this very unusual fish in part of a trash pile of a captain of a ship who actually caught it and brought it to her attention and said, what's this? It was pale blue with iridescent silver markings, and uh, she sent a sketch off to a uh, Dr. Smith, who was a senior lecturer in chemistry from Rhodes University uh, in South Africa, and it was hailed as the zoological discovery of the century, equating it to finding a living dinosaur. So they actually found one that was alive, or the, that captain caught it in a bunch of other fish and then let it go. No, he, no, he didn't let it go. It was there. It was there, dead. But they had the specimen. Yeah, had the specimen. So they killed the last one. No, it wasn't. No, no, since, no. there's a lot been discovered since, since then. then. Yeah, since then they found him. Oh, good. <laughs> so how's it taste? Eh, fishy. <laughs> Imagine if it was like incredibly delicious. <laughs> well, I bet just you farm them. I'll bet you someone's eaten one at some point. They must have something to say about it. It's true. At this point. We've sort of reached a point where if something's incredibly delicious, we're more likely to protect it than if if it isn't delicious. These creatures lived 65 million years ago and seem to be somewhat immune to the uh, uh, selective pressures of of time (laughs) that have gone by. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. Well, first of all, you have to recognize that this is not the same species of coelacanth that was living 65 million years ago. This is a... A family, I think it's a it's a it's a group of species. Wait, I thought they lived to be millions of years old. What? <laughs> so the, the, the ones that are al- one, the ones that are alive today are are a different species than the ones that were alive sixty five million years ago. But uh, they're you know they're similar. It's not like they're immune to evolution. First of all, most species are in, in relative stasis equilibrium with their environment. Most of the time, and on average, a species will live about two million years. So, you know, it's like it's basically no different than you know, like saying sharks have been around for a long time. You know, not an individual shark species, but just sharks as a group of fish. Uh, the, that basic body plan works, and it's pretty stable for that environment. I mean, it's interesting because obviously they they were only you know to discover a. a type of animal that was only known previously from fossils is interesting, but it's it's not the quote-unquote living fossil that, you know, creationists would have you believe. Yeah, but Steve, weren't there, um, uh, I mean, it had ancient, you know, fish structures, right? It was just a really old, like, design of fish, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it's that- like, in that way, it's like a platypus, you know, it, which is branched off early on from mammals and still retains right. a lot of what we think of as primitive mammalian features. But again, you know, that's just the way evolution works. Speaking of a platypus, I saw a platypus. You did? 
I did. I saw a platypus because uh, in the wild or in after a zoo? in so did I. zoo in a zoo. Well, in a actually, it was in a sanctuary in Healesville oh. Sanctuary. Because after I left you guys in Sydney after Tam, I went down to Melbourne and I was doing two talks down there with the Vic skeptics and the Melbourne University uh, skeptics. And they all took me to Healesville Sanctuary and they showed me um, that that's apparently the only place, it was, it's either the first place or the only place um, to have successfully bred captive platypi, platypuses, platypods. So and, how big are uh, they? Platypods. Oh, there are only, they're very small and... Uh, I think we were looking at a juvenile, but it was no longer than a foot, I think. And he was really. Now, did cute. they make any noises? Uh, I, this I one didn't, but he was did. he was underwater, like flapping around quite a bit. But they they have. Um, did you know that the males have spurs on the backs yep. of their, their feet that yeah are poisonous? Well, I should say venomous. Venomous. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> they will mess your stuff up. Um, what, what does that distinction mean, Steve? Po- if po- something is poisonous if you eat it and it poisons you. Something is venomous if it injects venom. What if you eat one of the things on the back of its leg? <laughs> then it's poisonous. <laughs> Therefore, we're you still went from right. Venom to poison. <laughs> I could transmogrify venom to poison. You know, while on the topic of things I did after I left you guys, I have to oh. say that you completely missed out in New Zealand. You so missed out. And oh, I just man, you flew in a jetpack or something, right? Yeah, I promised the New Zealanders that I would um, give you guys a hard time about this, so that next time we're all over there, you definitely come with me back to New Zealand. Because yeah, the New Zealand skeptics, Gold and the other New Zealand skeptics, took me to see the Martin jetpack that we talked about on SGU. Oh man, the amazing thing is, uh, you know, first they took me to see a ring laser that. Um, is basically for um, determining the rotation of the earth. No. Uh, It's in a cave in Christchurch. And the guy who's in charge of it is a fan of SGU. Of course. And so then after that, they took me to see the Martin jetpack. Oh, my God. And so I was asking them, like, you know, yeah, so do you show everybody this? And he's like, I don't show anybody this. I don't know why I'm showing you this. <laughs> it was awesome, though. Oh, that awesome. was the owner. And he he let me try on the actual jetpack, which was only, um, I didn't actually lift it all up onto my back, but it's only like 200 pounds or something. And then they let me fly the simulator, which is this hacked version of uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator, um, mm-hmm. which I used to play like all the time as a kid. So I was an expert at it, and I flew all <laughs> around Boston, and I, I landed on a building without dying. Did you see your house from up there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I flew past where I used to work. It was oh, really that's cool. So cool. Well, it sounds like you had an awesome time, Rebecca. Thanks for rubbing it in. We appreciate it. Bob, tell us about the whole arsenic-based life hubbub. Yeah, a few weeks ago, we were in Australia. A very interesting scientific paper was published, which, of course, we kind of missed. And um, it was published online in Science. The gist was that scientists working for a NASA astrobiology project found bacteria that appeared to replace phosphorus with its toxic cousin arsenic in the acronyms of life, DNA, RNA, ATP, etc. So uh, if true, this could... You know, potentially offer Nobel Nobel Prize winning evidence for an alternative workable form of biochemistry. 
um, which would be, of course, uh, pretty amazing. And uh, it's, it's just fun to think about some of the interesting ramifications if this, if this were actually true. Um, for example, it, it lends credence to the possibility that life on Earth could have not one origin, but but two, you know, two trunks on the tree of life. Now, these bacteria that were discovered do not demonstrate this, however, because the, these are pretty much just a variant of a, of, a, of a common bacterium, right, Steve? These were just, yeah, otherwise yeah. they were you know, unremarkable, except for this one potential aspect of them. Yeah, it's definitely not a separate origin. It's not alien life. Yeah, it's definitely just not. A, it, yeah. It's a, a yeah, known group of bacteria that, according to this paper, yeah. you know, if it's to be believed, has adapted to this environment by incorporating arsenic into its actual biochemistry. So uh, less spectacular and also probably not true in this specific case. Uh, this could uh, It's fun to think about the idea of life branching much earlier than we thought, ultimately creating something something that could potentially um, use uh, you know completely different components in the in the in the biomolecules uh, and creating what people a lot of people have been talking about this shadow you know biome or whatever um, that that could still persist to this day. Um, Steve, you talk a lot a lot about this in in your blog, so I recommend that reading that as well. So my guess though is that at best some biomolecules may have incorp- incorporated arsenate in a limited way. From what I've read, it seems that wholesale replacement of phosphorus with arsenic seems a little bit or maybe not, maybe a way too problematic. In many cases, swapping phosphate for arsenate would uh, structurally and fun- functionally change the biomolecule much more than you, than you would imagine just by f- by switching out these atoms. So, uh, But I still think there's a, the potential to learn something new here, and it should definitely be pursued. Um, at, at least let's get some higher resolution studies going on so we can see exactly what's going on. And, and uh, we're definitely going to do that. Yeah, I think in terms of the science... The criticism that came after this paper was that uh, the researchers didn't really establish that the that the arsenic is being incorporated into the biochemistry, and they didn't really rule out contamination. Right. Um, also, right. the 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 notion that the DNA re- essentially replaced phosphorus with arsenic is implausible because that would make it highly unstable, and they didn't demonstrate that you had stable DNA. With arsenic in it, so it, this is a preliminary finding that didn't really, you know, dot all the i's and cross all the t's. There's a lot of holes in this research, and I think the big problem here is not this study, which is interesting and should spawn further investigation. The big problem was the NASA press conference, where yeah. they essentially, you know, presented this as like a stunning discovery, not a preliminary finding. Yeah, this is like science by press release, right, Steve? I mean, this, we talked about this in Australia with the whole Penrose thing. Yeah, although, yeah, it was after the, the paper was published. So at least, the, you know, it had been published in a peer-reviewed journal. But it was, you know, because NASA funded it, they decided, oh, let's, you know, let's put the alien life spin on it and and make a major press conference about this. They roped in the head researcher who I think had no clue how to deal with the media. Yeah. and found herself in the middle of a, of a storm that she didn't know how to deal with. And I think NASA also dropped the ball. Yeah, and then the problem after that was um, when people started asking these questions um, afterwards, and they, they kind of went, went dark, right? I mean, they, they kind of like stopped dealing with the media. And that was the, one of the big complaints is that you don't initiate this, you know, this media firestorm and then just walk, a, walk away from it and not want to deal with the, you know, with the follow-up. 
Yeah, NASA's response I thought was BS. They said after the backlash started to occur, started to occur after their press conference, they said, "Well, these questions should be sorted out in the peer-reviewed literature, and we're not going to get into a public discussion about right. these scientific it's total technical BS. total BS." Because what it's the like, what the right. blogosphere, what the scientific blogosphere, blogosphere is doing is something that's better than what is currently in place with the peer review process. Obviously, the peer review process is screwed up right now. And it's the internet, the open, free access blogosphere that's actually doing the work that should be done during peer review. I mean, there's still a, there is a role for peer review and for having you know, uh, the official you know, record. And that does take time, and that's fine. But I think the problem here is that you know, NASA essentially said, here's a big press conference, but now we're, not going, now we're going to withdraw from the public arena. That's it. They can't have it both ways. I think yeah. what they, they really shouldn't have had the press conference. They should have just let this work its way out, itself out in the, in the, in the literature. If that's their position, then fine. Right. Don't have the press conference. Yeah, NASA was saying don't don't respond in public. Write a letter to the paper or to the to the journal, and that's yeah, that's idiotic. Yeah, right. When you're you've opened up the door, you know right. this is obviously far beyond <laughs> yeah. the journal right now. Right. Now the, the the new bit here, this uh, Felissa Wolf Simon, uh, she seemed to take the the brunt of the media storm on this. She was uh, the head person on this. Um, she's a she's a, perf- a former performance oboist. With a doctorate in oceanography oh, and okay. a NASA sure. fellowship in astrobiology, yeah. Going to say, what's an oboist doing? So, uh, <laughs> so she, she was she was interviewed by Science, and uh, and it, it was interesting to get her perspective on some some of this. So, uh, some of the takeaways, uh, re, you know, regarding the infamous NASA press conference, um, her, her her claim was that it was supposed to be a high level discussion. Uh, so the findings can be can be communicated, you know, to to anyone that was interested. And she really wasn't prepared to get into the technical details at the time. And she she didn't have any of her data with her, or any of her graphs and charts in, in order to do that. She said uh, she said uh, specifically here, I understood I understood it, and my co-authors understood it. It was really about representing this is what we found. This is the observation we made in a way that a community could understand. Obviously, she wasn't prepared uh, for, for what happened. But yeah. another, a, lot of the, a lot of the criticisms also involve the, of the availability of other techniques to really nail down what was going on with the arsenic and phosphorus, like, like for example, cesium chloride density gradient, ultra centri- centrifugation, uh, tools like that that people are saying, hey, why didn't you just use this? This, this tool would have really told you exactly what's going on. So her take on that kind of approach was that um, she said – we could have waited until we did a really exhaustive selection of all these alternative techniques, many requiring collaborations with groups well outside of our field. But instead, I and my co-authors, we wanted to provide a strongly suggestive and convincing argument to our community to initiate these new collaborations and really inspire other people to go out and do this totally uh, in de novo. Um, so she's presenting it as just here's the preliminary information and everybody just kind of run with this. Which again is legitimate, but not when you'd go for a press conference. So that's, right. that's the disconnect here. There's a couple approaches with this kind of research, and this happens a lot, right? So again, this kind of basic science research, it's not one study. Researchers will do 10, 15, 20 studies, each looking at a question from a different angle or using confirmatory techniques until they really build a convincing story. Now, you could either wait till you do that but that might mean five years or more of research, and you, you, you have to get 
funding throughout that process and you need to be publishing stuff. So it's really not viable anymore to hold on to your research until you've done all of the, the follow-up research and have your story totally solid. So researchers will study, will, will publish preliminary results along the way. And that also does have the advantage that people can sort of monitor the process and collaborate and put in their two cents. That's fine. Sometimes researchers get criticized for splitting up their research too much to try to extract a lot of papers. You know, they might take five papers worth of research and try to get 10 publications out of it by breaking it up too much. So you can go too far the other way too. The, que the, the question is, the as this process is playing itself out, how do you interface with the public and with the media? And that's where the fail was here, in my opinion, as I've said. It, you have to treat preliminary research as preliminary research. If you were just throwing it out there in order to spark collaboration and you knew it was preliminary and you knew you, haven't, you hadn't dotted all your I's, then don't hold a massive press conference and present it as if this has huge implications for the nature of alien life and whatever. And the, it's, from reading her kind of a lame defense of, of what happened in this, in this interview with Science Magazine, you also get the feeling like she has no clue that the, the science media world has changed because of science blogs, as Rebecca was saying. Science bloggers are there now. You don't have this fluff press conference where you can bypass all of the details and you're not prepared to talk about any of the actual evidence and you just want the big headlines because there are science bloggers who are paying attention and they're going to call BS on you at the speed of the internet and her and NASA got caught with their pants down. So this is, I think that's exactly what happened here. It's amazing that that actually did take place though. You know, We're all disappointed to hear that such a... Something that we would never expect from NASA. You know, they were so loose with it. They didn't even uh, vet themselves. They just basically threw it out there for their own ends, whatever those ends are. Yeah, I thought they would have learned something from that whole. What was that? What was that uh, a couple of years ago? That uh, that fossil uh, circus that that erupted. Yeah, because they, Darwinius. The yeah, Darwinius that was. Right. I mean, you'd think they would have like examined that case first. All right, let's not do anything remotely similar to this. And and they obviously didn't do that. Well, obviously, they've missed a whole lot in the last few years, particularly, like Steve was saying, with the, the power of science blogs. And, I've, you know, as depressing a story as it is that NASA has failed so badly, I think it's also kind of um, uplifting in the fact that the science bloggers so quickly smelled a rat and, and dug up the truth on their own um, and and publicized it and became part of the news cycle and right. you know part of the mainstream news cycle. I think that's fantastic, and I I wish you know I, I think we're going to see more of it as yeah as oh, absolutely time moves on. You know, yeah, I think there's going to be a big shakeout. The interplay between between the bloggers and uh, and and conventional media and uh, and and. Sci you know, scientists yeah. themselves. It's good, and and this blogger this is a working scientist who's also going to right. submit a formal paper to the peer review, you know, to a, to the literature, to an, a, a journal to get published. But you know, that it takes months to have a conversation in the literature, in the written journals. The, meanwhile, it's already happened, basically, in the blogosphere in days. And again, they, yeah, they just have to adapt to the new realities. But let's move on. The, the next story is an interesting one. This is an, um, a – you guys heard, remember the Sokol hoax? You guys know what that is? Mm -hmm. Alan Sokol, yeah. 1996, I do. Yeah. published a fake 1996. paper. 1996. 1996. 
published a, a, a fake paper in the journal Social Text, in, in, which, in which he basically made horrendous fun of postmodern philosophy by writing a completely jargon-filled, meaningless, and nonsensical stream of consciousness just to show that you can get meaningless gobbledygook past the, the journal editors. And that he simultaneously published a his reveal in in, a, in another sign like a physics journal. I forget exactly which one. It's infamous now, the Sokol hoax. You know, some people say it wasn't fair, but I think he, what he did was beautiful. I mean, if you if you know if somebody could slip that past your editors, that should, shows a lot. Um, yeah. So now another a medical doctor, a British professor by the by called Dr. John McLaughlin did a similar type hoax. He submitted a fake paper to an international conference on, on integrative medicine in which he completely made up out of whole cloth uh, a fake practice of uh, butt reading. Basically, <laughs> it's just like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is like... Uh, Sylvester Stallone's mom. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah. a rumpologist or whatever. A rumpologist, yeah. So basically, you know, independently made this up, trying to come up with the most ridiculous thing you could think of. Of course, the most ridiculous thing you could think of, somebody's already doing, right? Uh, but it's like it took the, like the a homunculus, like a representation of the body, actually pretty much copied it from like the motor strip in the brain, pretty similar to just the homunculus in the brain, and overlaid it over the butt. And then combine this with I, you know, notions of reflexology and acupuncture and whatever, and just you know, Kim just made up this ridiculous thing, and submitted that, and they accepted it. <laughs> so again, it's just show that <laughs> there's there's no there's no filtering process here. You could make up complete nonsense, and it gets accepted into an international conference on integrative medicine. And then he published his, you know, he withdrew it and published his reveal on the, in the British Medical Journal. Uh, he said he was tempted done. to go to the conference, which was in Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> he said he was very tempted to actually go. But he had to step back at yeah. that point. But he gets it. He gets it. What he said was uh, about this, so-called integrative medicine should not be used as a way of smuggling alternative practices into rational medicine by way of lowered standards of critical thinking. Failure to detect an obvious hoax is not an encouraging sign. There you go. I'm right. Well done. Rebecca, speaking of bogus alternative medicine type nonsense, tell us about the V-STEAM I would love to tell you about the V steam <laughs> from um, personal experience. Luckily, no. Um, oh, you were supposed see, to when do I, some investigative journalism and experience it personally. Well, you know, I was going to. Um, you see, courtesy of ORAC, over at Respectful Insolence, comes this news that a growing trend in California is a Korean treatment for the vagina, which involves a boiling pot of tea Ouch. held basically beneath your lady bits. And you see, you know, I was thinking, yeah, this is a great idea. This sounds like a lot of fun and made myself a nice pot of tea and then thought, you know what? I'd rather not put this boiling water anywhere near my vagina. Mm-hmm. Weird. Weird, I know. Good, I, I'm just not like most women, by, I you know? Yeah, yeah. But apparently other women feel differently um, and they are going for these treatments um, This was reported on in the LA Times as something that's going on in 
Koreatown there. Apparently, it's a traditional Korean method of ridding the body of toxins. There you go. We all know how much alt-med proponents hate toxins that are hiding inside your body, hiding so well that mm, actual science can't find them. So, yeah, I basically I to toxins. rid... Yeah. And, and you know, I especially enjoy hearing about the all the horrible toxins that are lurking inside my vagina. Yeah. I eat toxins for breakfast. <laughs> I thought that was babies. <laughs> Only on Thanksgiving. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. <laughs> Basically, um, it costs $75 um, in Manhattan, apparently. It's happening there. Uh, $20 in Koreatown in L.A., or you can set up yourself at home for $330 because that sounds like a good idea, too. You know, if you Jeez. don't trust a stranger to hold boiling steam next to your vagina, then why not just, you know, do it yourself? DIY. According to uh, these people who are selling this to um, gullible housewives, I suppose, this is supposed to reduce stress fight infections, clear hemorrhoids, regulate menstrual cycles, and aid infertility, among many other health benefits. And in Korea, says the article, many women steam regularly after their monthly periods, which immediately reminded me of one of my favorite pseudoscience topics, douche, which I believe I've mentioned once or twice in the past. And sure enough, later on in the article, um, they interview someone who says that it's it's even better than douche. And just so you know, um, douche is something that is sold in the United States, and it is sold on the basis that a, a woman's vagina is disgusting and in its natural state should be um, shunned, and that the only way that a man will ever find you pleasing is if you, uh, on a regular basis, shove a bunch of vinegar into your vagina and wash it out that way. Ow. Of course, this does actually nothing. The vagina is, a, in general, a self-cleaning organ. Yeah, geez, you'd think so. Otherwise, women would be dying of infections left and right all over the place. Exactly. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, in fact, what douches cause infections. Um, douching is basically like dropping an atom bomb into your vagina and <laughs> it, it, it blasts out all the bacteria in your vagina, which is not a good thing. As you, most of our listeners probably know, there's actually good bacteria that you are covered in and is, is inside of you and is regulating um, how your body operates. When you kill off these bacteria, it allows infections to creep in. And so um, women who douche are more prone to get vaginal infections, which can actually, if left untreated, lead to problems like infertility. So so basically saying something is better than douching isn't really saying much of anything at all. If something does nothing, then it is better than douching. And that appears to be what this does, is absolutely nothing. But yeah, there's no there's no scientific evidence to suggest that this will do anything to help you. It might be relaxing so long as you don't scald your nether regions, um, because you know a steam bath in general can be quite relaxing, and that can help with certain stress related problems. But as for helping infertility, things like that, no. ORAC mentions that they also recommend this treatment for men holding the uh, steaming tea up to the scrotal area. 
And Orak correctly points out that, you know, that's not going to cure anybody's infertility when a big problem that many men have um, is wearing briefs that are too tight and that keep yeah. their balls too warm, basically, and, uh, and kill off sperm production. So mm-hmm. steaming that area is not going to make your little swimmers any happier, I assure right. you. Although that is not a reliable method of contraception, I would say. <laughs> Earlier, could be. Earlier, uh, you you said something about it helping hemorrhoids. So that steam, that tea steam, like basically creeps up your ass and helps your hemorrhoids too. Supposedly, according to the proponents, yes, it will clear your hemorrhoids. According to the people who made the fake claims. So this is the perf. This is the culture of spas, right? This has been going on for centuries. These health spas make up crap and make all kinds of health claims about it or pseudo-health claims. And, you know, sometimes the treatments are pleasing or relaxing. Sometimes they're a little strange. But it's just whatever weird stuff comes down the pike, they'll do it and they'll attach the pseudo-health claims to it. And that's the industry. That's the entire industry of spa, health health spas. They're usually smart about steering clear of making any health claims. They'll say that, you know, you do this to um, help aid in the treatment of or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty surprised to see them say that this will fight infections. I mean, reduce stress, yeah, um, but fight infections? I fail to see yeah. how, that, that, how that will ever hold up to scientific scrutiny. Um, that, that steam isn't, isn't at the temperature of steam when it hits you, like it's rising through the air and it's cooling very, very rapidly. I mean, yeah. Bob, if that steam was hitting you at full blast heat, you'd burn yourself. It would burn I you. Know. Yeah, so if I it's going to yeah. kill the yeah. bacteria, it's going to burn your skin. This steam, actual steam, will burn you a lot worse than boiling water will. It actually contains right. a lot more energy. But that's sort of, you see, that's the pseudo-claims that they make. Remember when we investigated reflexology and you know the, the spa was offering it at the hotel, I think it was TAM6 or something, and they said, oh, well, this is just spa reflexology. What does that mean? It means we get to use the name, give you a foot rub, and, and there's all these implied claims that go along with it, but we're not making any claims. That's right, what that I mean, that's, means. that's exactly what, what it is. It, it's, you know, we, we hold this steaming wormwood under your vagina. Well, why wormwood? Well, because in Korea, they use it to treat bladder infections. Well, does that mean that this will treat? Oh, no, yeah, no, let's, not, let's not actually say that. Yeah. But in Korea, they use wormwood. We're using <laughs> yeah, wormwood. Yeah. Draw your own conclusions. Exactly. Right, exactly. BS. Well, let's move on from the VJJ to singing mice. Jay? So, what does Mickey Mouse sing? This is a, uh, you know, I start every single news item. This is pretty cool. <laughs> Recently, researchers at the University of Osaka, directed by Professor Takeshi Yagi, have done something weird but really interesting that I, I was very happily surprised to find out about. They genetically modified a mouse to become prone to miscopying DNA. And they did this because they wanted the mice to actually generate more mutations with the underlying idea being being that mutations are going to lead to, um, with some evolutionary pressure or crossbreeding, that they would come up with some interesting and unique mutations that could, you know, help them figure out, you know, whatever. You know, like it's basically an open-ended research to see what they come up with. 
And basically, the scientists reason that since mutation is key to evolution, you know, they combine it with crossbreeding, and it should produce something interesting. And you know what? Something interesting did happen. As time passed, they discovered that a, one little mouse was making chirping noises. One of the researchers actually said it was singing like a bird. This mouse was born <laughs> totally by chance, and they had been expecting mutations that affected size and shape, but not, you know, a singing bird or a, a tweeting little bird. Can you just pretend, just just tweet something? Yeah, so the bird sounded, the, the little mouse bird sounded like this, tweet, 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 like that. I taught, I taught, I put it guy. So what they ended up doing was they took that mouse and they started to selectively breed that particular mouse and they ended up with about 100 singing mice. And the team now hopes that the singing mice will help lead to information as to how human language evolved. That's a stretch. Not necessarily, Steve, because they've actually studied finches and, and other bird types. Uh, like a birds will take different sounds and they'll string them together and they'll make a, a you know a bird song that most of us have heard, like a, a, a pattern that they do. And those patterns actually have meaning. They're, they're, there's something relevant about them. Well, yeah, I understand and that, but I don't know why that would tell us anything particularly about human speech. Which well, wouldn't necessarily follow any of the same you know pathways that bird singing or chirping mice did. All right, relax a little, and I'll tell you. So basically, <laughs> what they believe is that since these are mammals, that they will have more mammalian behavior in their vocalizations, and that this would kind of be a, a step closer to human speech just because we have that in common. You know, mice are obviously a lot more similar to humans than birds are. So, you know, Steve, this is science. They're going to just see what happens. I mean, they, they stumbled upon the singing mouse now they're going to just see you know what they could do where the, where this can go and that's you know this is one of those in interesting ideas about open-ended research where they didn't even know what they were going to find you know they some of the mice ended up with shorter limbs and uh, one of them ended up with um, something that was described as a joshin tail like a, a small dog's furry tail look at what we did with with dogs you know with breeding dogs so why can't we make as many varieties of mice as there are of dogs we could right? i want dalmatian mice like in the royal yeah. Yes, Bob. Bob's. yeah guys i looked long and hard for five seconds and i found a video of them singing of Jay. the uh... i just went to Where? youtube typed in singing mice and i got it <laughs> <laughs> now wait a minute i bet you if when i go to work tomorrow and i look up what i typed in i i, I probably spelled the word singing wrong or, or something bird. like that <laughs> signing <Okay>. mice <laughs> signing <laughs> mice <laughs> kind of cute. I, that was bird-like. That, yeah. I think they Don't were maybe mouse doing already comparison. sound like that? Well, Steve, what did you think it was going to sound like? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a mouse that's making vocalizations. Yeah, it's a chirping mouse. It's, it's cool. It's pretty cute. Now, Evan, that would have been a killer who's that noisy. Mm. Well, sure oh, it would have been. We really screwed that up, guys. <laughs> yeah. When I found that item, I thought that would be a great hu who's that noisy, and it, it would also be a great science or fiction. Yeah. Would have killed two birds with one stone on that one. All right. Thanks, Jay. Evan, tell us about the real Da Vinci Code. There is a real Da Vinci Code, in case you were not paying attention to the articles uh, from about a week ago. An Italian researcher has uh, come up with a new controversy over the world's most famous 
painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Apparently, da Vinci painted very tiny, very small letters into the eyes of the Mona Lisa, which supposedly, according to researchers, may reveal the supposed disputed identity of the model, which I wasn't really aware that there was a dispute as to who the model was. I thought that was yeah, confirmed. Mona. From what I found, there was a uh, document uh, that was found by researchers uh, that identified Lisa del Giocondo as the model of the Mona Lisa. Apparently, that was supposedly the end of that. But they're saying that these letters in the eyes now perhaps reveal something different. So, you know, in, uh, in Italy, they call that painting La Gioconda. They don't call it the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually means something it, dirty in their language. They laugh whenever Americans say it. I call it Mona Lisa. Uh, <laughs> according to, according to uh, the lead researcher of a team of researchers, his name is Silvano Vincetti, uh, and he is the chairman of the Italian National Committee for Cultural Heritage. He said that it's invisible to the naked eye, but painted in black and green and green-brown letter uh, are the letters LV in her right pupil, which he says, obviously, are Leonardo's initials. And in her left pupil are letters that, well, he said it could be a B, it could be an S, or possibly the letters C and E. I guess they're still trying to figure that out. They also said that they found letters painted in the bridge, in the background of the Mona Lisa, something people aren't used to looking at when they look at that painting, they're saying it's the number 72 or the letter L and the number 2. Oh and they're God. still they're still trying to figure it out. So so a couple things. The, you know, the Mona Lisa, how it was painted is actually a very a very fascinating thing. I mean, it took it took him 16 years to complete this painting and he used such fine and small Whoa. brush strokes in this little cross-hatching technique called sfumato, S F U M A T O. I mean, and we're talking like one thirtieth of an inch thick, as far as these little brush strokes go. So this, this, you know, Leonardo da Vinci just was, with a magnifying glass. He took a looking glass, right, and basically was painting it one tiny stroke at a time, and layers upon layers of paint, which is what apparently gives it its uh, uniqueness and you know just that that image that you all know what the Mona Lisa looks like that uh, that that impossible to replicate. Essentially, and, and they figured out why. is because it took them so long using this very specialized technique. Wow. You know, I, I looked and I could not find information pertaining to any other uh, da Vinci drawings, paintings, or other things that in which he encoded them with letters and numbers. So I'm not sure why they think that this painting with these particular letters and, and, and numbers that they found is some sort of particular code. I mean, I suppose, LV, sure, that's – you could you – could, say, I think, with some confidence, Leonardo da Vinci. But the other letters, they're not even sure really what the letters are there, right? There's a B, C, S, E. They're still trying to figure it out. I don't know. It, it seems, it's, I, I question that a little bit. Maybe there are codes in his other works yet to be discovered that they'll take a second look at, and they'll try to find more letters and numbers and try to distinguish some sort of pattern. So that's, that's to be continued, I guess, in the future. Also, this, this fellow who's head of this... Uh, of, of this group, Silvano Vincetti, I mean, 
the uh, chairman of Italy's National Committee for Cultural Heritage and all. Um, couldn't find a lot of information on him specifically, uh, where he teaches, if he's a professor of anything, and exactly what his background is. Um, the only other thing I could find in regards to him is that he petitioned earlier this year to have the remains of da Vinci exhumed so that they could uh, try to recreate a cast of his actual head and skull, um, and that apparently, uh, because he was buried in France, they were petitioning the French government in order to try to do that. So uh, apparently, nothing, although his petitions went out, I don't believe he ever got the chance. There was never any follow-up articles or stories about that. I, uh, interestingly, in all the articles about it, they didn't have any pictures of the alleged letters and numbers. Too small, I suppose, or they haven't... Uh how did they to... see them? If you could see them, you could photo- you know, photograph them. But you're right, Steve. Yeah, there was no actual pictures of it. So you want to know what I did figure out, though? I, fi- I figured something out. Leonardo yeah. da Vinci's yeah. full name is Leonardo di Ser Piero da Vinci. All right? So if you take all those letters in that full name and you assign, say, the letter L is 12, right? Because it's the 12th letter of the alphabet, and the letter E is 5, and the letter O is 15, and so forth. And you take all and you add up those numbers in his name, you get the number 264. He started painting the Mona Lisa in 1503. All right. 15 minus 3 is 12. You subtract 12 from 264 and you get the number 252. The number 252 divided by the number of letters in his name, which is 6, is 42. No. Coincidence? I think not. Wow. I think we That's have found wow. the answer to the universe. You know, if you take all the letters in Leonardo da Vinci and you rearrange them, you can get the words Vindaloo and Rice. <laughs> Evan, it's time for everyone's favorite, or maybe second or third favorite, SGU segment. <laughs> Who's that noisy? Second Aww. or third favorite? Come on. <laughs> well, you know, there's Fourth science or fiction. And- yeah, okay. Six. Nothing competes with science or fiction. But Noisy runs a close second, I would say. It's good. Let's just leave it at that. We'll go. All right. Make it, make it good. <laughs> yes. Last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. Cool. And, and what is that? Time? That, that singing mice? You would think so, right? Based on the episode this week? No, it's Was it not. Jay pretending to be singing mice? <laughs> <laughs> we've had, so far, we've had singing mice. Uh, we've had uh, dino fish. Remember, we opened the show with that. And now you've just heard a caterpillar whistling. Wow. A whistling caterpillar, yes. Specifically a walnut sphinx caterpillar, which makes that whistling sound as a defense mechanism uh, when it gets attacked by, well, in this case, they had some forceps that they were kind of uh, squeezing it with to make that noise. Um, to see it in action, though, basically, if you think about it, when a bird goes to attack this thing and starts to squeeze it, it'll make the noise and the bird will startle and drop it. So basically, Evan, it's a caterpillar screaming. <laughs> well, they call it a wh- they call it whistling. The, it's so uh, much the more scientists- pleasant when you call it whistling. Yeah. <laughs> call it whistling. The freaking caterpillar is screaming. Leave me alone! Ah! It's a I'm jaunty whistle. <laughs> oh my god! Poor guy. <laughs> Uh, someone came relatively close to guessing it. Um, hey, this isn't horseshoes. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's not going to count. Someone who posted on the uh, forum said thought it was a squeaking beetle or maybe a scarab. Um, That's not even close. But, uh, 
I, th- I thought of, uh, when you said that, I thought of the hissing cockroach of Madagascar. You guys ever hear that? Yeah. Mm, they yeah. Hiss. I have cool. heard it. Oh, they do hiss. Sounds they nasty. Hiss. Yeah. They, yeah. They're amazing. cute little buggers. That noisy was sent in by our listener, Shellfire. Shellfire Grayson from London brought me to that website uh, so that I could share it with all of you. So well, well done, done, Shellfire. What do you got for this week, Evan? Here we go. <laughs> so what's kept you interested in skeptics? How come you didn't just kind of get involved in it and then think, yeah, I've done that now. Well, how mm. come you're still sort of active and involved? Yeah, I have. All right, everyone. So you should know your skeptic female voices out there and give it your best guess. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. Uh, we're just going to do a couple of corrections this week and then go on to our interview. There was a minor problem with pronunciation last week. Uh, I had looked up the pronunciation of the fish C-I-C-H-L-I-D, and I, I thought that the pronunciation guide said cyclid, but it's actually cichlid is how you pronounce it, cichlid. Cichlid. Yeah, number of I enthusiasts that. pointed that out. Yeah, but you weren't here, were you? Well, just saying. Yeah. I was busy trying on jetpacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and boy. Evan Shitty made an animals. offhand comment about methane smelling, and, yeah. and many listeners pointed out, that methane is a colorless and odorless gas. Well, yeah, look, but it, wasn't it, he just making a fart joke? Isn't that just a fart joke? I think so, but you know, I think fart jokes should be immune I mean, from pedantry. Immune, yeah. Uh, <laughs> side podcast. Right, as, as long as we're being as long as we're being nitpicky here, it's not entirely odorless. It has a faint odor, which scientists describe it as a sweet-smelling odor. Sulfur is added in you know, production of of the methane, and so people can smell it, so they do know exactly yeah. what they're smelling. So, right, yeah, right. So, I was referring, of course, making a comment pertaining to the sulfurish smell that you sometimes get with methane, which is added. They, right, yes, they add it to natural gas as well, which is mostly made up of methane. But yeah, and I made some very ambiguous so statements that. about why plants are green last week that I want to clarify. Yes, do that. Yes. So plants are green because chlorophyll is green, obviously. But the question is the relationship between the color of plants and their absorption of sunlight for photosynthesis. Uh, So chlorophyll absorbs the light from the sun mainly in the red and blue part of the spectrum. And it reflects the green part of the spectrum. That's why, obviously, it's green. Uh, In some plants, there are secondary pigments that absorb other colors that help you know the chlorophyll get the most energy out of sunlight. That is fairly efficient. I mean, the chlorophyll actually does absorb in those parts of the spectrum that are fairly intense, but it does, of course, leave out some of the light in the, in the green part of the spectrum. The question is, why is that the case? Because, Evan, you brought up this was all based upon the notion that uh, scientists were speculating that most plants, most alien plants, would be black, and that kind of makes sense if you want to absorb all of the sunlight, then you that you would appear black. So why aren't trees on Earth black? The only thing I could discover is that it's mainly just evolutionary contingency because that's you know what plants came up with was green chlorophyll. And they use secondary pigments and other techniques to try to maximize the absorption of energy from the sun. Well, we actually have a, we have a short interview this week with the skeptic bros the guys who came up with the whole placebo band. Right before that, we're going to play a very short uh, piece that James Randi recorded about the same topic. 
but also since that interview, which we did at uh, TAM Australia, and the whole placebo ban thing was like was one of the the popular themes of TAM Australia. And just today, I think, I mean, we've, I've gotten about a dozen emails about this today. I think I think Richard Saunders sent me the links to it yesterday because you know they're in the future there. <laughs> That there's actually been quite a development. Have you guys had a chance to read this press release? It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit, yeah. Power Making Balance admits no reasonable basis for wristband claims. Consumers offered refunds. This is from the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC. Uh, they blasted Power Balance. This, these are those these rub, those rubber wristbands that have the little holograms in them and you know, they sell for some ridiculous price. They cost a buck, but they sell for like thirty, forty to sixty dollars. And they claim they give you more energy and they more balance, you know, physical balance, and it's supposed to be the magic of the holographic vibration, frequencies resonate with it's all crap, right? The ACCC said that uh the company was guilty of misleading advertising claims about the alleged benefits of power balance, wristbands and pendants. They have been withdrawn by the manufacturer after Australian Competition and Consumer Commission intervention. Uh, and as a result, consumers will be offered a refund. Uh, can you imagine that happening in the U.S.? Why do they do it? Are, are they tired of making money? No, no. They're, they're being forced to by the, the uh, basically the Australian equivalent of the FTC, I guess, is probably the most. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Wow. So occasionally the FTC – in the U.S., the FTC will, will tell a company to stop making claims and they may give them a slap on the wrist kind of fine. But you know, this kind of stuff uh, is – Someone on my Facebook brought up the old tale of Kevin Trudeau yeah. as being similar. But, you know, and then he just keeps doing what he's doing anyway. So it will be interesting to see if, you know, the, if the power balance guys actually respond to this and right. do as they're told. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'd like to think that this, at least partly due to the uh, activism of the Australian skeptics, you know, really bringing this to the fore. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, Richard Saunders has a great video showing how it's basically a con. He gets yeah. a shout out from uh, the organization that was instrumental in, in bringing it to, um, if you go to choice.com.au, they call themselves the People's Watchdog. So I assume that they're kind of like a either a better business bureau or sort of a consumer reports thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were apparently instrumental in getting this done, and they give a shout-out to Richard Saunders for his help on the power balance issue. Awesome. Well done, Richard. Well, let's hear what Randy and the Skeptic Bros have to say about it. Excuse the wet towel I'm throwing in here, but the James Randi Educational Foundation has a million-dollar prize that can be won easily and quickly by any of these bracelet manufacturers, distributors, or vendors who can show in a simple, direct, easy-to-understand test that their product actually works. My question is this. Why have none of these people stepped forward to claim that prize? And I'll answer my own question. Because they know that they can't prove their claim. And they're already making millions by making and selling this product. They don't need another million dollars. Now these people are selling a fake product. It's a dishonest act and it cheats the consumer. We should be protected by the law, but we're not. 
Here in the USA, the FDA is a toothless dragon whose flame has gone out. This is James Randi. All right, we're sitting here with Nick and Tom Croucher. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. Awesome. And uh, you guys uh, came up with this great idea. We're really impressed. You, uh, well, why don't you tell us what you did? We decided we'd go for a bit of truth in advertising and wanted to lampoon the uh, power balance in particular, um, balance band. So we created Placebo Band, which looks like a power balance band and does exactly the same thing. Nothing. Which is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, we also saw people buying actual power balance bands to use as a prop to disprove their claims. But that obviously gives a bit of money to the power balance people. And we wanted people to have a prop that they could use. So I, I guess we were targeting kind of a sceptical audience when we were coming up with the idea. Yeah. So really briefly, just tell us what the power balance band is. Okay, power balance is um, one in a long list of um, bands that through either quantum or any other red flag where you they, they can come up with um, will give you extra power or balance really that's they say it all in the thing um but it is it's just really cheap magic tricks they used to sell it to you and then then after that you get you take the band home and you you notice that uh, through confirmation bias that you're um you might go for a run and feel good about it and, uh, and, it, and it's not the band working it's, it's just what you think so um, that's what power balance is. Yeah. They usually jam a whole heap of very kind of separate scientific terms and ideas into their, their kind of marketing that they use. Um, so they, they've used the Schumann resonance frequency, they've, they've used ions aligning, quantum's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not even that in neurons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Whatever they <laughs> think Resonance. Frequencies. Oh, frequencies. Yeah. Sorry, can't forget the frequencies. They don't actually say what the frequencies are, but oh, oh. yes, it's, but it's basically techno babble that would make Scotty blush. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> so Richard told us that you guys uh, were uh, selling them and you're donating all of the profits to uh, what was the charitable fund? Uh, we we the because we buy them in batches. We're only sort of doing it out of our houses and stuff. So um, the first batch of them we managed to. We're selling them sort of non-profit, but just through rounding up, you know, just making making dollars around figures when we're selling them, we make a little bit of profit. And so the first lot of profit went off to Rotary, um, Rotary International. They've got a, an eradicate polio um, program where they intend to buy a bunch of vaccines and get them out into, into countries where, where where there is some polio left with the idea of totally eradicating. Yeah, so we donated to that, and um, we're not sort of affiliated or beholden to anyone. So right. the next lot might go to. We might just donate it to the SGU or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Australian Skeptics or something like that. Whatever we're interested in, some non-profit. Yeah. So, so but tell me logistically. So, where, where are you buying these from? Okay, so um, through my work, I have some contacts that do manufacturing in China. Um, so I basically did a. a a targeted web hunt and through my other contacts that I had found uh, what I found was the, the closest looking band to the to the current ones that are selling in Australia. I can't say that it's the same factory, but they were quite happy to for us to change what was written on the band and change the hologram. 
Oh, so this is a factory that already was making making the band. bands, bands, yeah. rubber bands with a little hologram. Whether in it's them. the um, official endorsed one or the knockoffs that you can buy on eBay, because yeah. Power Balance don't even have control over it anymore. That you can oh, get right, and there's literally dozens and dozens of different uh, manufacturers of them. I uh, see. Some with two holograms, some with four or three or five. Wow, they're all different. Some, some, some of them look the same, some of them look really different. Oh, no. Right. One of those guys, they, one had four, so their claim, their big claim was um, twice as powerful as power balance. And they can charge twice as much for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and speaking of money, guys, uh, you know, you're only charging $2 for yours, and you said you're making very little profit. Um, power balance charges 60 plus dollars? 60 here, yeah. I think 30 in the U.S. Um, you can get them on special for 40 here. Yeah, yeah. Right, but they're, they're, they've got to be paying just what you what you guys were paying. They're, they're paying less. Oh, less. Yeah, because they're, they're buying a lot more. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so they're paying probably more. less than a dollar a we, unit. We pay less than a dollar. Yeah. Um, out of the factory to get them here, we pay about spot on a dollar. I mean, we don't have packaging, but um, we were offered packaging, and I think that they would be able to get them with the packaging onto the stores for around a dollar, maybe yeah. less. Yeah. So, so that's do, a good match, right? Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a great business for them. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to target it. <laughs> that people making making this huge markup and a lot of money off of people's goods. We found dollars. it really disingenuous, like that much markup for yeah, something right. that is just rubber. And right. Just and a hologram. And a, oh, sorry, and a hologram. Yeah. Two holograms. <laughs> it's not even that cool of a hologram either. It's not like well, our one. No, no. But I, what I mean is, it's not like it's expensive. There's any, you know, this is like the, the type of hologram we saw 15 out. years yeah. ago. You know, the holograms are stamped out in in sheets of what thirty five thousand. Yeah, that's, one. that's the minimum yeah. you could get of the holograms themselves. And then thirty five thousand, like, like half a cent each or less. The factory right. keeps them, and then they just put them in the bands as you order them. Yeah. It's so funny that the machines can stamp out thousands and. With all that energy, the machine still works, right? All that energy emanating from the holograms. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, wow. Well, no, but Bob, it's, it's interacting with your biology. The machine, uh, you know, the machine doesn't have any biology. Oh, okay. To That's got to be it. Yeah. It's got to be it. Right. But isn't the frequency supposed to be in tune with the person who's wearing it? I guess everyone has the same frequency. Oh, there's their money back guarantee because what they say on the, the packet is, you know, it will work for most people, but if you find it doesn't work, then bring it back to the store and get your money back. Right. I did that. It was cool. Basically. They gave it. They, they, they gave me my cash back. I, I, I rang up. Um, actually, rang Power Balance in Australia to check whether that was the policy and what I did. What whether I needed to send it to them or just go into the store. Yeah. I paid for it with credit card and um, went into the store and they gave me cash back. Ah, so it's almost like a cash machine in a way. Yeah, I, I guess one of the one of the the scientific things that they're hijacking is is um, one of the Schumann resonance frequencies. Yeah. Well, guys, this is uh, an incredible example of uh, not only grassroots skepticism, which you know you guys are bringing awareness. Um, it's funny and ironic, and you're donating money to a good cause. So uh, this is a, an incredible example of, of phenomenal grassroots skepticism. Yeah, I did. I actually just started it, so I could get a mention on the SGU. And, and <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you that that a couple of weeks ago he did say that I he doesn't care what we do or or what we were doing or what we were making out of it or who we were helping if he could get um, even a mention on your show. Well, that's understandable. <laughs> it, it would be, yeah, yeah. yeah, goal reached. No, uh, <laughs> we weren't sure how big it would go, and it's massively bigger than what we thought it would. I mean, relative terms, it's only small, but um, it's massively bigger than what we thought we did. We thought maybe we'd 
yeah, we had to order a thousand, so okay, well we'll order a thousand and see how that goes. And we've done a couple of batches since then, and it's been really, really cool. And it's so awesome seeing everyone at Tam wearing one. It's really wicked seeing you guys wear one. <laughs> and Richard Saunders needs another shout out for just logging the crap out of me. He's wearing two. Yes, you've got to wear three. You, you must. You must have given a lot away there, Richard, if you're only wearing two. <laughs> I've snuck into the room, that's right. No, I have. I, I've given a lot away because people will ask me where I'm, when I'm wearing them. Oh, you're wearing those. Oh, no. They're not. They're placebo, and here's how they work. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Although, interestingly, the, the literature shows, sorry to get all technical on you, that uh, the more you pay for something, the bigger the placebo effect. So oh, that's yeah. why they charge sixty dollars to get a more placebo. That, that's placebo why I bought so many. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That so you got to wear more so that your investment mm-hmm. is huger, right? That was actually one of my um, uh, uh, conflict I had because I, I did know that about the placebo effect. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, it was a joke. Right, so, right, right, right. Yeah, we will be better. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for sitting with us, guys. This again, we we really love this idea. It's one of those ideas. The be- the biggest compliment, of course, you could pay to an idea is like, oh, oh crap! Why didn't we think of that yeah. first? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, it could have been we perfect. We just stuck that in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Now, uh, brothers, can people still buy them online? Yeah, we have another batch coming in. Um, They're on pre-order. Like the site, the, the website's always up. It, it it's either pre-order or, or we're selling them so uh, you can get that done on skepticbros.com yep and uh, that's skepticbros.com yeah B-R- yep. like Mario Brothers but yeah it's B-R-O-S. 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 good meeting you guys and thank you very much for coming on the show yeah thanks for having us it's been wonderful absolute privilege thank you very much take care it's time for science or fiction Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. This week yes. was actually challenging. Well, there was, a, there was too many news items to cover this week. I had a hard time finding good science or fiction items. And all the ones I wanted to use were already out there, especially through the damn skeptic quickies. <laughs> you might as well, you might as well rename that science or fiction spoilers. <laughs> Ooh. I'll, I'll I wanted to do the the, uh, the chimpanzees that. with the with the carrying sticks as dolls. <laughs> you can't you can't best the skeptics. I always check there before I do my science or fiction. But anyway, uh, so I'm doing a theme this week. These are all facts about. The winter solstice or something to do with the earth and the sun and stuff. Ready? Okay. <laughs> Louisy. <laughs> Item number one. The recent full moon on the winter solstice was only the second such event in the last 2,000 years, the other one occurring in 1638. Item number two. The earth rotates about its axis approximately 366.25 times for each revolution about the sun. And item number three, for points on the Arctic Circle, this is the one day of the year with 24 hours of darkness. Jay, go first. All right, so the recent full moon on the winter solstice was only the second such event in the last 2,000 years. The other one occurred in 1638. So there's two that happened. One happened 2,000 years ago, and one happened in 1638. No. One happened in (laughs) 1638, and there have been no other ones in the last 2,000 years. Oh, okay. Okay, I really don't know about that. That's I, I don't have any information about that one, but that seems 
possible. The Earth rotates about its axis approximately 366.25 times for each revolution about the sun. Well, yeah, doesn't that account for leap year then? But that's a day and a quarter longer, or at least a day longer than... Uh, I think that is accounting for... No, leap year is just one day. Isn't it? Every four years they add a day. Nobody's going to help me with this. Anyway. <laughs> no, you're on your own. Uh, and the last one for points... On the Arctic Circle, Steve, is it four points or F-O-U-R? No, four points on the Arctic Circle, if you are on the Arctic Circle. For points on the Arctic Circle, this is the one day of the year with 24 hours of darkness. Yeah, I think that's correct. I'm going to go with the 366.25 times for each revolution as the wrong one. Okay, Evan? The recent full moon on the winter solstice. 1638, I believe, is the year, but I didn't know that it was only the second such event uh, in the last 2,000 years. I don't, uh, I don't quite know about that one. Uh, the Earth rotating on its axis approximately 366.25 times, I believe, is correct. That's where we get leap. Uh, the extra is it? No, it's uh, 365.25. I thought, and then you add up the the, the four. Uh, quarters there, and that equals the day you add every four years for uh, for leap year. But you're saying two, uh, 366.25, which is interesting. I have to think about that a little more. And then the Arctic Circle, the one day of the year with 24 hours of darkness. I don't know about that. These are all very close to being right. Well, obviously two of them are right. One of these is very slightly off. I don't. I don't. How think do you the figure that, Evan? I don't. Well, I'm just saying it. Uh, the Arctic Circle. I don't. I'm sure. I don't think this is, there's only one day with 24 hours of darkness in the Arctic Circle. So I'm tempted to say that that one's the fiction. I think. I think you get more than one day at certain points in the Arctic Circle in which you get yeah, 24 read, hours read, of darkness. Read the read the question carefully. It's not in the Arctic Circle. It's on the Arctic Circle. That. Actually, oh wow, that's that's a hint, Steve. That I didn't get. The 66-degree mark? Uh, that line? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. This is the one day of the year with 24 hours of darkness. That might be true. Well, then it's between the full moon and the Earth rotating. Shoot. Uh, the only one I'm not sure about is, you know, so many articles have been reading about this incredible lunar eclipse that we had just the other night. That The last one was 400-so-odd years ago, but... That I didn't really see anything prior to that when the one before that was. Was it really since? Uh, I'm going to say that one's the fiction. I think uh, there was another one that happened uh, prior to 1638, but not uh, but certainly before the year zero. So I'll say that one's fiction. Okay, Rebecca? The full moon one, yeah. It's just the last 2,000 years thing that I'm not sure of. But yeah. the, the other one being in 1638, I heard. But... Okay, so I don't know. I don't know about any of these because I, too, thought it was 365 and a quarter times for each revolution around the sun. And for points on the Arctic Circle, actually on that latitude, I thought that you actually had to be ever so slightly within the Arctic Circle several by several degrees in order to experience 24 hours of darkness. Well, you see, that's what um, I was saying, Rebecca. These are all just like... Seem to be a little bit yeah, slightly off. All of them seem way. wrong. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> They're all wrong. That's what I'm going with. They're all fiction. Trick question. Um, yeah, so which one is wrongest? Um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the question. 
the one about 366 and a quarter times for each revolution about the sun seems like the most obvious choice because why would that be 366 instead of 365? But, you know, if we've learned nothing, it's to to avoid the obvious. But I don't care. You know what? I'm going with that one. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay. right, bitch. <laughs> all right, Bob. Um, let's see. The full moon one. Yeah, I guess we've all heard that it's been that it's been centuries since uh, this has happened on the uh, winter solstice. But, of course, nobody knows when the last one was. Um, eh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it could ha- it could. It could be. Um, I don't know. The second one makes sense to me. As, as Evan pointed out, the point two five uh, is is basically what leap year is, and it's actually not point two five. It's point two five with some remainder, which is why uh, I said on certain centuries. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just, but I'm just. He's I'm not, just. You know, he's not attacking you. I'm just. Exp- no, I'm just explaining a, a, an interesting detail. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because there's a remainder point two five whatever. Uh, certain centuries are also are also. Oh, that's years. right. We had to uh, they, go. I think yeah, they're that, divisible by four hundred or something. Um, so that that so uh, and the the two the three sixty six. I think it's three sixty six because when the when the Earth rotates around its axis, it's also moving in its orbit. So that when the the new day is there, it's got to rotate just a little bit more. It's got to rotate just a little bit more to get back where it was because it's it's moved. So I think that probably adds up to the day so it's kind of a a trick question and i think i'm not 100 percent certain on that but i do know that it's got to rotate a little bit extra more because it's moved in its orbit around the sun so i think that makes up that extra day i'm fairly confident about that the um the arctic circle one um i just don't know um so i'm gonna say that um i'm gonna say that that one uh is fiction okay so you guys are all over the board which is always good i like that and I guess I'll just take these in order. Ah. Number one, the recent full moon on the winter solstice was only the second such event in the last 2,000 years, the other one occurring in 1638. Evan, you thought this one was the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science, and this one is science. Yay. I wouldn't say they thought it was science. I'd say that their best guess was that this was <laughs> More likely correct than them with the other. Our best guess. <laughs> all right, you better settle down there, young man. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, we don't guess, all right. So, according to uh, NASA, you know those guys. NASA, <laughs> Mexican. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, NASA, the guys that got that arsenic thing all wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> they they went back and. Uh, looked at the last 2,000 years to to find when there were other instances of the uh, a lunar eclipse occurring on the winter solstice. Since year one, they were only able to find the one in 1638. No other instances. Uh, do you guys know when the next one's going to be? For winter um, solstice? Next year. Next year. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. 2094. So not that much oh. in the future. 2094. Some people listening we'll to the show right dead. now may be alive. Who knows? I'll be 131. <laughs> so that one was science. Okay. The Earth rotates about its axis approximately 366.25 times for each revolution about the sun. Jay and Rebecca think this one is the fiction. Bob thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Ah. And Bob, Bob is right. Bob is correct. This is the difference between a sidereal day and a solar day. A solar day is the time yeah. it takes for the sun to return to the same position. 
the sidereal day is the time it takes for a, a fixed star to return to the same position. But of course, the Earth has moved with respect to the sun, you know, basically you know, about one degree around that circle, and therefore it has to turn about a degree more. It's got to rotate beyond, you know, exactly around one, so that it to orient the sun the same way, since. Uh, we were, we think of days, we were thinking of solar days, which are actually a little bit more than one rotation. And, of course, as the Earth goes around the sun once, those extra little rotations add up to exactly one additional rotation. So the Earth had, there's 366.25 sidereal days, or rotations about its axis, per revolution about the sun. So you're saying if we kept a sidereal calendar, like eventually after so many years of going by, January would be in the middle of summer? Well, it depends on exactly what we did, but it, essentially the Earth, the sun would shift every day. So it would be, uh, the sun would be at, uh, high in the sky at midnight, you know, at one part of the year and another time. So the, you know, the, yeah, the, the day-night cycle would shift throughout the year. So we fix the time, the day to the sun, and then that, add, that throws in that extra rotation to make it all work. Uh, which cool. means for points on the Arctic Circle, this, the, meaning the winter solstice, is the one day of the year with 24 hours of darkness is fiction. Now, I admit this is a bit tricky. Got a little tricky with this one. Um, if you read a lot of sources, it'll actually say that this is true, but it's not true. And the reason why it's not true is because what what is true is that the center point of the sun does not rise above the horizon for 24 hours. But parts of the sun do. So you get about two hours of light. And actually, technically, sunrise is timed from the not when the center of the sun rises above the horizon, but when any part of the sun peaks up above the horizon. That's sunrise. Mm. And sunset is when the last bit of sun disappears. So actually, you do have to be within the Arctic Circle in order to get the full 24 hours of darkness because of just the size of the sun. Huh, okay. But a lot of sites, a lot of sources I went to got that wrong. Rebecca and I were wrong, but but it was a very tricky question about the data. It was tricky. Overly tricky, I would tricky. say. Yeah, it was it was actually borderline bullshit, but we'll we'll give you a pass on this one. Yeah, it was tricky. Yep, BBS. It was tricky. BBS. <laughs> I had tricky, that, but you know, I couldn't, Bob, I couldn't you, find news you, items, so I had to. You guessed well, tricky. Bob. Wasn't a guess. We have a few very interesting announcements to make, but first, Jay is going to give us his quote of the week. This is a quote by Stephen Jay Gould, one of Steve's heroes. And the quote is, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. Stephen Jay Gould! That is... uh, an excellent quote. I mean, you think about it. I mean, you think about people who had the, the raw talent of a Mozart or an Einstein, but just never were able to achieve their potential or anything close to it because they didn't have the opportunity. You know, they just, it was not part of their life circumstance. That is yeah. very sad to think about that. It is sad. It, it, it's weird because, you know, a lot of times I'll be talking to people, the idea of, you know, where are the geniuses today? Where, where are the people? Um, and I would always argue there's tons of them. You know, I don't know how many Einsteins are rolling around today. It's, I've never really heard anyone talk about it, but I would say that there's tons of people that are in their specialized field are as intelligent as Einstein in one way or the other. 
But there's also tons of people. There's six billion people on the planet. There's tons of people that just don't get the opportunity to ever flex that muscle, you know? Yeah. And it, yeah. that's pretty sad. Another interesting thing here is that this quote was sent in by a guy named Ishmael. Ishmael Darrow from Saskatoon, Canada. Saskatoon. 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 Saskatchewan. I have never met anyone named Ishmael. I have only read a book with that word in it before. You never read that book. I did. Moby Dick. (laughs) So we got a few announcements. The first one's very good news. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe has won the podcast award, the People's Choice Podcast Award in the science category. So this is two years in a row. Last year we won in the education category. This year we won in the science category. So thank you to all of our listeners who supported us. Thank you. This is the People's Choice Award. You guys made it happen. God for making this happen and also my parents. And I'd like to congratulate our good friend, Mark Chrislip, for winning in the health and fitness category for QuackCast. An excellent cool. podcast. Cool. Right? Very cool. I'm sure those power band bracelets we sent him helped. Good job, Mark. And another, another good news uh, announcement. Over the last year, I've been working on a project with a teaching company. If you remember about a year ago, I asked for people to send me ideas for medical myths they would like to see debunked. Well, that was for a course that I was invited to record for the teaching company. They, they're they actually a really excellent company. They put out courses called The Great Courses. That's their project, their, their product. Uh, that's like really high-level college courses for adult learners. You know, So just pick a topic you're interested in. You can It's like going back to school and, and listen to that course. It's very well produced. I was very impressed with the whole process. It was a lot of work, but it was worth it. And that it is now available for purchase. So we'll give the link in the show notes. You can also just go to Neurological Blog. I, I wrote about it uh, a couple days ago in the link to uh, the teaching company to the page where you could see the course on Medical Myths is available. So check it out. I think you'll like it. I can't wait awesome, to see Awesome, Steve. It. Yeah. Quick announcement from my end. I was invited to participate on a podcast called Parenting Within Reason, uh, which we recorded last weekend. should be out sometime this coming Christmas weekend. So a big thank you to Colin, Julie, Elise, and Lori for having me on as a guest panelist. I had a really, really great time. So thank you very much. And check it out. Parenting Within Reason, and the website is foundationbeyondbelief.org. That's Elise's and skeptic, Elise. Uh, a quick uh, announcement, too, regarding Nexus, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. First, a quick reminder that Nexus 2011 will take place on April 9th and 10th. We are shaping up the speaker list. It's going to be, I think, quite an excellent list, and tickets will be going on sale in January. When we get the list finalized, we'll, we'll announce that. But we're also looking for some volunteers. We've had some requests to have a sign interpreter present uh, for the hearing impaired for the conference, and we are, we are definitely going to do that. However, we would like to know if there was anybody who is capable of doing that, as serving as a, a sign interpreter, who would like to do it in exchange for free registration for the conference and attendance at the speaker dinner later. If you are, then send us an email, and uh, and we'll talk to you about setting that up. But regardless, we'll make a, whatever arrangements we have to do so that that service is going to be offered this year. So. Uh, if you know anybody who is hearing impaired and would like to attend a, a science conference like this, then uh, you could let them know that this is going to be available. Oh, that's awesome, Steve. And next week will be the 2010 
wrap-up episode. I guess we have a whole decade to wrap up, don't we? Oh, oh my gosh. Man. Really? A whole decade? We've got to start it's doing that now. It's going to be some 10-hour <laughs> podcast we're putting together. It should well, be we'll fun. See. We'll do what we can. Well, guys, thanks for joining me again this week. Thanks, Thank Steve. This was fun. Surely. Thank you, Doc. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Thank you.